Let's, let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Father, we thank you for this salvation that you have so freely offered. That we who are sinful, we who just so naturally and even desirously do the wrong things over and over and over again, Lord, that we could be forgiven, seen by you as righteous, and made to be your children through Christ. What a great miracle. Lord, I pray that now as we turn our hearts and minds and attention to your word, that you would work in us to see the implications of this miracle of salvation, to see the, what it means that we are made new in Christ, that we have a new self. Lord, sometimes this can just be so confusing for us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit. You would help us to walk with you in obedience to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a pastor, I get to do what I consider to be some pretty unique things, things that I would not get to do uh, and be a part of if I had a, a normal job, uh, you know, one that required me to work more than half a day a week. Um, <laughs> One of those things that I've been able to do and been invited to be a part of is citizenship ceremonies, where I've had a few friends who have become U.S. citizens, and I get invited to where they take the oath of citizenship after they've done all their work of, you know, all the background check stuff, taking a citizenship test that I think most of us would probably fail uh, most of us who were born here anyways, uh, sometimes knowing our history better than we do. And then they take this oath of citizenship where they, they swear off any previous allegiances they have and only allegiance to the U.S. and to the Constitution and protecting of it, even being willing to join the military. Many of them do join the military or their children do. Um, and it's a really special thing for a lot of these people. It's a brand new start. Um, maybe it's a lifelong dream. Maybe it's a new chapter on escaping a very difficult situation. But these new citizens, the moment they take that oath, they are full citizens of the United States. And at the same time, they still strongly associate with and resemble their home culture. They're now in their new home and they're learning to live in their new home, not as a foreigner, but as a full-fledged citizen. They learn the history. They, they struggle. Some of them struggle more than others to learn the language devoting their allegiance to the U.S. They're using new currencies have to learn weird numbers like zip codes. 
And they begin over time to think in a way, and this happens pretty slowly, especially for the first generation, to think in a way that resembles their new home. They might start thinking differently about what it means to have a job, what it means to have freedoms, what it means to pursue wellness, and even to participate in government, whether it's running for local office or being able to vote in an election. And how to react when wrong is done to them or when wrong is done by them. And the challenge facing new citizens is to act under this expectation that they would be fully assimilated into the culture already, to try to understand this new culture and act in accordance to this new culture, while their tendencies are very much to respond in their heart culture. So think, for example, someone who grew up the first 30 years of their life or more in Australia, and they come to the U.S., they become a citizen, they're driving, and traffic is moving fast, and it's heavy, and there's an accident in front of them, and they revert to their old tendencies and drive on the wrong side of the road. How disastrous that would be. Or anyone else who grows up in a country where they drive on the wrong side of the road. It's a challenge to live in the new culture while still very much having tendencies of your born culture. We're in Romans 12 right now. We're looking at what it means to gather on purpose. But a big part of gathering on purpose in Romans 12 is not just under the mercy of God that we've talked so much about and continue to, but under the fact that through that mercy, we are transformed. That we are transformed from worldly citizens to heavenly citizens. And that is an immediate transformation. And the challenge for the believer for their entire life until they get to heaven, the challenge is this. I am a citizen of heaven who needs to respond as a citizen of heaven while still having very strong worldly citizen tendencies within me. Do you guys see the connection? And as a citizen of heaven, I need to respond very differently than what my natural tendency may be, and certainly differently than the tendencies I'm seeing acted out and lived out in front of me, sometimes by people I look up to, and sometimes by people that I really am done listening to for the moment. But this transforming power of God that renews our mind, that changes us, makes us full-blown citizens of heaven, even though we still have a strong earthly, worldly resemblance. We are citizens with old, we are new citizens with old tendencies. We have a need, responsibility, and even an obligation to live out our new citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, especially in the presence of adversity and tribulation. And not only do we have that need, but I believe the world has a need for the citizens of heaven 
to live as citizens of heaven among them. And through citizens of heaven living as citizens of heaven, that the world may see the light and love and grace of Christ. We're picking up in verse 14. I'm going to read this final paragraph of Romans 12, but for this morning, we're only going to be dealing with verses 14 and 15. So I'll read those again after I read the whole paragraph. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome e do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this morning we are looking at specifically, bless those who persecute you. Bless, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Those transformed citizens of heaven live out their heavenly culture in the midst of worldly difficulty through ironic blessing. This instruction revolves around the response to persecution. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I, I think it would be helpful for us to define persecution. I hope to very briefly around this complex and difficult topic of persecution, very briefly to give some context and definition. Jesus in the Gospels defines persecution as being reviled, the utterance of evil against you being hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected on account of Christ. There are a lot of people that insult you because that person is just wicked. There are a lot of people that mistreat others just because they're mean and they're jerks. This is specifically being mistreated, whether that's hatred, being reviled, having false things said about you because of the name of Christ. Not because of you, not because specifically the person doing it is a jerk, but because of the name of Christ. Open Doors, an organization that does a lot with the persecuted church, says Christian persecution is any hostility experienced from the world because of one's identification with Christ. For the Romans who received this letter, persecution was mostly from the culture who referred to them as atheists because they did not count Julius Caesar, or they did not count Caesar as a god. They did not partake in the sacrifices to idols, so Christians were called atheists. They were persecuted and left out by the world for that. They were persecuted by the Jews who saw them as a cult departure from Jewish faith. And what we commonly think of as the state persecution of the Roman Empire did not begin until a while after 
the book of Romans had been sent out. For our brothers and sisters around the world, this is a real thing. Many of them worshiping with whispers, finding pieces of the Bible they can study and memorize, only being able to gather with other believers occasionally in secret, constantly moving the location that they meet in in fear of being found out, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Many of them walking a delicate balance of how do I share my faith in this life-saving, life-changing news of Christ with my family, knowing that I will probably be kicked out of the family or even beaten or killed by my family. In the U.S., our persecution feels pretty minimal, I would say. We are the exception where Christians are not openly persecuted. The forms of persecution we receive are word-based, ideological. Occasionally there is a hate crime against a church where someone comes in and shoots a bunch of people or vandalizes the property. We are called names. We are overlooked. And there are, there are some who spend a great deal of time and energy worried about impending what they are convinced is imminent political persecution of Christianity. And while that may or may not happen, I think it is wise for us to heed the words of our Savior to not worry about tomorrow. To live for today and to heed the words of Paul that we would be wise with the day that we have. We would take advantage of the freedom we have to share Christ openly, to worship openly, to talk about our faith. But there's a couple things we need to clear up. Disagreement is not persecution. There are a lot in the world that disagree with the message of Christ, and they'll say, I think you're wrong. They may even say it with a bit of passion, because especially in America, our culture is built on self-perceived righteousness. You look at the, the increasing temperature of the political climate, whether it's in a school board or in the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and every side of every issue is convinced that their side is the righteous one, and the other side is full of hatred and vitriol. Disagreement is not persecution. There's also a very big difference between being mistreated on account of the glorious holy name of Jesus and being mistreated because someone else or you yourself, while holding up or pretending to hold up the name of Jesus was an absolute jerk. Yelling at a group of people, you're all going to hell, you're all going to hell, God hates you. If you get mistreated because you do that or because someone else did that, that's because someone was a jerk, not because Jesus is good and was rejected by the world. There's a big difference there. One, being hated simply because Christ was hated and we are his is a blessing. The second is a consequence.
one way of knowing if I'm receiving or going to be receiving a blessing or a consequence, I think is understanding and submitting to the instruction that Paul has for us here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. There's a double instruction of blessing. And really it's a triple. Because the last one is saying, do not curse. Bless, bless, do not curse. And what Paul is saying is we cannot bless and curse the persecutor at the same time. It's one or the other. And our blessing does not cancel out our cursing. Do not respond in kind with those who mistreat you on account of the gospel. Those who would hate you because of Jesus. Those who would maybe pass you over for a promotion simply because of Christ. Those who would spray paint your house. Those who would vandalize our building. Those who would tell us we are hateful and say all kinds of false things against us, those who would arrest our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, those who may desire to do the same things with us or stifle us. Let's not respond in kind to them, but let us respond in kind with Christ. that we would not wish them ill, we would not speak ill against them. You see, there's something deeply problematic about a believer cursing, speaking poorly about or maligning a person, anyone. Even those who persecute us, there's something deeply problematic about a believer cursing someone. We need to be careful and disciplined in this matter, to take it seriously and to, to really heed the instruction and the imagery of James 3. Can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? Neither should the tongue of a believer praise God the Father and curse man made in his likeness. I tell you this, if your sink unpredictably when you went to get a glass of water gave you salt water sometimes and just fine-tasting, normal drinking water other times, you would have Des Moines Water Works on speed dial. You'd go through a litany of plumbers trying to figure this out. This would be an unbearable problem for you to go up to the magic button on your refrigerator, stick your glass against it, Take a drink and it tastes like the ocean. But then five minutes later, it's the most refreshing water you've ever had. That would be a huge problem. You'd call the Maytag man. You might detonate the refrigerator. How seriously then should we take it? When a child of God would have no problem praising the name of Jesus 
glorifying God for the salvation he's given us. And then look at those they consider to be opponents, those who have persecuted them, even those who they consider to be enemies, which we'll get to in a few weeks in Romans 12, and say, that stupid moron! They're such an idiot! Wish they'd die! How can we praise God with that mouth? Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. How can we speak of the immeasurable treasures and glories of God and belittle people made in his image using schoolyard insults about their intellect or even their own body that God has knit together in their mother's womb. Lest we think for a moment that Psalm 139, that portion of it only applies to believers. How can we wish them away from us so that we don't have a chance to interact with them. How can we, who do we think we are, to cast them out of our presence where, where they would go to a place not having a chance to hear the gospel? Let's bless those who persecute us. And we need to look to Jesus for this. In Matthew 5, at the end of Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you prepared to love your enemy and your persecutor? Are you prepared to love your neighbor you have nothing in common with and the flags outside the home and the, the signs they have in their yard in the fall of even-numbered years are different than yours? Are you prepared to love them? Are you prepared to bless those people. And this is enemies and those who persecute us, but are you willing, let's, let's look at those who persecute us, those who say evil against us, those who speak ill of God, trying to align him with their agenda, who is, which is not remotely biblical. Are you willing to love and bless them. 
to live not as a citizen of the world, but as a citizen of heaven. So that when we see parades in the month of June, and there's, there seems to be two sides, those marching the parade, celebrating their pride in the LGBTQ lifestyle, and then occasionally a, a group of people with signs usually say, God hates you. Are we willing to be a third group of people that hands out water and says, I love you, the Lord loves you, and I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to help you know who God really is if you want to hear. To actually learn names. Are we willing to take on just a shred of the heart that Pastor Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of Martyrs, describes the pastors in prison in Romania, communist Romania having, where they would pray for their persecutors and, and even try to preach the gospel to them while being beaten and celebrating when those persecutors not only came to know Christ, but then were sometimes thrown in jail right next to them and then they just cared for them. Years ago, I was at an event, and I've learned that at large conferences, people love protesting. Like one time I was at Urbana, which is a missions conference, and people were protesting that like Urbana wasn't pro-life. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they are. I'm pretty sure like all these missionaries believe abortion's wrong. We don't need that, that poster here. That's a really poor use of that poster. Uh, if there were a good use of that graphic poster, um, it was really bizarre people protesting, people who agreed with them. But I was at a different event and some people were protesting and, and the people protesting were, were part of the LGBTQ community. And uh, my friend who was a more experienced pastor than I, him and I were, were driving to this event and it was a community worship service. And on our way back, he just said, oh man, we really should, it was really hot. We should have taken them water. There were a whole lot of other people yelling at them. Yelling at them about how wrong they were or just ignoring them. We could have we loved and blessed them, and we didn't. So what are ways that we bless those who persecute us while refusing to take the low, worldly way of cursing them? Well, one, we, we just pray. That's what Jesus told us in Matthew 5. Pray for them. This looks different in different types of persecution. The absolute best thing that could happen to that person is to realize that there's a God in heaven who loved them so much that right now, while they're still sinning, Christ died for them. They need to know that. We can pray for them. We can pray that God's reign would land on the evil and the unjust. We, can, we need to keep in mind the perspective that our battle Ephesians 6 is not against flesh and blood. That person holding that sign, that person saying false things about me, that person locking up my brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East, in Africa, and whatever other part of the world, that person is not the enemy. That person's lost. And we need to rightly broaden our understanding of what it means to curse someone. 
This isn't, you can't praise God and not cuss. It's much more than that. It's much, much, I mean, don't cuss. In case some of you were like, I got an out. No, you don't. But it's much more than that. If I, according to the word of God, can commit the same as murder by hating a person or commit adultery by lusting after someone, not my wife, then you better believe our hard intention is able of inflicting curses on people and wishing them ill. I wish they'd just go away. They're so evil. They just need to get out of here. I wish they'd just shut up and sit down. So instead of seeking to call fire down on them, like James and John, remember they're on the way to Jerusalem, to Mount, town in Samaria says, no, we're not going to house you guys because we can tell Jesus just wants to go to Samaria. James and John do the most godly thing they can. They look at their what would Jesus do bracelet and they say, Jesus, would you like us on behalf of you, almighty son of God who created the world, would you like us to call down fire on them from heaven to consume them? We'd really like to see Sodom and Gomorrah up close and personal. Jesus says, no. I'm about to die for their sins. So instead of saying, why don't we just call fire down on them, how about we say, it's so sad these people don't even know Jesus is getting ready to die for their sins and to have compassion on their lostness, as God does on Nineveh. And then we, we need to tell them the truth. We absolutely need to tell them the truth. It's the most loving thing we can do. But there's a few different ways of telling the truth. And you can say the right thing in the wrong way and be wrong. If you yell in an angry way, sinners go to hell, but you can go to heaven through Jesus Christ who died for your wicked, awful sins, you're saying a great truth, you're saying it without love, and you are a gong. But if you can come, and you can say, look, I recognize this moment, really tense. But I'd like to step out of this moment with you. I'd like to take you out for coffee tomorrow. I'd like to sit down, get to know your story, get to know your viewpoint of where you're coming from. Start talking to them. Start asking them questions. Be curious and, and point, ask, keep asking them questions. Keep asking them questions and get them to ask you questions. Talk to them about the gospel. And it's going to be a whole lot more effective than let's yell at each other across the street. Or it's going to be a lot more effective than let me stew on it for a while and go to bed while angry at you. Let us tell them the truth in a credible way and in an affectionate way. Knowing that we're never going to change their minds, but the Holy Spirit of God does a whole lot, of whole lot of work when His people obey Him in a loving, trusting way. And then, here's the other way we do this. Blessing and not cursing those who persecute us is we let the fruit of the Spirit rule out the fruit of the flesh in us. 
So where we see anger and bitterness and malice and rage in us, we repent of that. That's the fruit of my flesh. That's my flesh coming out. And where we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we celebrate that. And we let the fruit of the Spirit do it. And I want you to dream for a moment what things could look like if the church, us as Westchester, and the church, the people of God in Des Moines, in the world, if the church did this well, what would happen? What if when seeing people protesting against Christianity, we extend kindness instead of a glare or a shout? We lovingly walk towards it. We got to know them. I think the problem is so often we take our cues from those who handle these things in an aggressive opposition to the culture and not from our Savior. As you're going through, how do I handle the major disagreements on these things, and the, whether it's the culture wars or this person who just hates me because I love Jesus, where are you getting your cues from in that? Are you getting your cues from the Sermon on the Mount? Are you taking your talking points from the Word of God, from people who obey this verse? Or are you taking your cues from people who are craving just the right sound, sound bite they can blast out on social media to make it look like they're right and everyone else is stupid? And with that, evaluate which one's the fruit of the Spirit and which one's the fruit of the flesh. The belittling person is acting in the fruit of the flesh. And part of where this comes back to gathering is we need each other. We need each other to do this well. And I'm going to, I've spent a lot of time on this. I knew I would. We're going to get to the rest here. We need each other to do this well. This is an area of accountability and confession of sin. I got this coworker that drive me nuts. I got this, this boss. I got this neighbor. I need you to pray with me that I will actually be a blessing to this person and not a curse because I know what my flesh wants to do and it's not to live as a citizen of heaven. So, we have ironic blessing, and then we have divinely inspired empathy. And this is living as citizens of heaven with those who are opposed to us and those who are with us, with each other. This divinely inspired empathy. See, we live in a world and a culture that is geared at making us believe that we're the center of the universe. Your algorithms constantly point you to all the things you want to see on your computer, whether it's ads for the fashion, for vacations, for toys, whatever it is, your computer goes that way. You're, you, can, you can find your own news network that tells you exactly what you want to hear about the world's events. You can decorate your home however you want, and the algorithms will help you find that. All of this sometimes feels fairly innocent. Sometimes it's actually quite helpful, and other times it's incredibly insidious. Because it feeds our self-centeredness. But we are not called to live as self-centered. We are called to live as heavenly citizens who are transformed. Now, real briefly here, there's two, two general types of transformation that we need to think about. One is the dramatic infomercial before and after. You put this polish on your car, it'll instantly be worth $100,000. 
It's like it'll turn your, 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 your shabby car into like better than it was when it was in the factory. And it's this amazing transformation, and it's immediate. And then there's the slow transformation, and the, the best thing I can think of to describe this is sometimes you have a friend who just very quietly decides, I'm going to take my health very seriously. And you don't notice much at first. And then, like, you're going out to eat, and they, they eat plants. And you're like, hey, let's go out for ice cream. And they get water. And then slowly you notice like, oh, your face looks better than it did. But you can't pin it down. And then after a couple months, you're like, this person's really changing. And then you see a picture from a year ago and you're like, my friend is a new person. That they set early alarm clocks and they don't eat Reese's. Romans 12.2, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, is both of these types of transformation. It is immediate. We place our faith in Christ. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Sometimes in that, people experience an immediate freedom from addiction. They experience an immediate loss of anger. This immediate, like, just grace bubbling out of them. And then even for those people who do have an immediate monstrous growth, there's always, for every believer, this slow, disciplined, God-changing you over time. The life of a Christian is one of diligent, intentional pursuit of godliness that will supplant the worldliness that will always be in us to some degree or another until heaven. I mean, you can, it, it's like this. You can kick all the sugar, but Reese's are still going to taste good. You know where my vice is. This transformation is daily, hourly, sometimes moment by moment. As we get rid of our pride, we get rid of our lustful flesh, we get rid of our anger, we get rid of our bitterness. And in this case, we replace it with a level of empathy that's found in the Lord. That we would rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Over the last few weeks, I hope one thing you've been hearing is that as we constantly look at our salvation that God has given us, we constantly see different nuances to how we are to live as a Christian. See, the gospel is like this multifaceted diamond that's just perfectly hewn, it's perfectly shiny and clear, and what happens is we see the diamond, we're like, wow, that's a great diamond. But then, as we get closer to it and we turn it, we see the light reflecting off these different faces of it, coming through as clear light coming out, as these bright colors that are dancing all over the room, and we keep turning it, and we keep seeing the diamond from different angles. And as we do that, we see that we have a Jesus who wept and grieved and was part of wonderful feasts. And we have a God who is preparing, who has this home for us, and there's going to be a banquet with the best food, the best beverage we could ever imagine, and he's the God who wipes every tear from our eyes. And he's the God who doesn't say, I am holy, I am right, you have to identify with me. But he's the God who comes and says, I'm coming to you in your weakness, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to know your pain. I'm going to empathize with your weakness. We have an empathetic God. And so God is able to tell us, 
through Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. These extremes of emotion, you do this with each other because he does it with us. He calls us to do what he does. So how do we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Specifically, how do we do this in a way that is sincere and keeps us from emotional whiplash? First of all, in this too, we must set aside ourselves. I need to set aside my selfishness. There are times, I, I, when I come to the body of Christ, I need to set aside my day a little bit. I need to be willing to put that on hold to care for people around me. And I'll get back to that towards the end. Secondly, we need to ask how each other are doing and care about the answer. There's a sister in Christ in this room who will remain nameless, who one day I said, how are you? And she goes, Oh, I'm perfectly miserable, and how are you? And I missed it, and she got me. I have forgiven her for that, but she got me. Because what we do is we say, hi, how are you? Fine. And then we don't really even, like we've moved on to the next thing before they answer, how are you? So we need to ask it, and we need to care about their answer. We need to listen. And not listen to see what I can say back, but listen with the hope that I can repeat back what they've said to me. Sometimes in conversation, we get going so fast-paced that they're like, well, I had a miserable day at work. Well, you probably went into it with the wrong mindset. And we're like, oh, I'm going to sanctify you in this. When he says, oh, your day was miserable? Tell me why it was miserable. Tell me about that. Oh, that happened? How did... You know, and we, we, we need to slow down our conversations in order to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and hit the other marks in between. Listen, ask questions, repeat. And then we need to be willing to enter in. It can be really discouraging. When you tell someone, I'm actually going through something really hard right now, and they immediately move on to the next thing. Similarly, it can be really discouraging when you say, I got the best news of my life, and they say, that's great, and move on. Let us enter in to what they are feeling. Enter into each other's emotion and condition. They may have lost something that's good for them to lose, but in the moment they're grieving what they've lost. So grieve with them, and then in time, as they see, you know, it was actually pretty good that I lost that job, then we can say, I think you're right, and we can rejoice with them in that. Maybe they lost a loved one who was really ill, but that loved one loved Jesus. And so we grieve with them, and then we rejoice in the hope of the gospel. They may be having a really bad day while you're having a really good day, or vice versa. And there's a challenge in this. 
for me to say, I'm going to set aside my bad day to rejoice in your good day, or I'm going to tone down my emotion because I'm walking on air. And you're going through some pretty, pretty difficult times. Another area where rejoicing is, is hard, because that sounds like the easiest, is what happens when your loved one, when your brother or sister Christ is getting the thing you've been longing for and not getting? Are you able to rejoice with them when they're getting the thing you are longing for? And in here, I said I'd circle back to this. Be mutual in this. That when you go up to someone or someone comes up to you and they say, how are you doing? And you just pour it on. Good or bad, you pour it on. You open up like a book, which is a good thing. At the end of your opening up, step towards that person and check on them. I've been talking a lot. I really need to know before our conversation is done, how are you doing? Seek fellowship in order to meet each other's needs, not just your own. That when we would come together for church, that we would not just come together for worship and the word, which are paramount, but that we would come together for each other. I need someone to grieve with me. I need someone to rejoice with me. That we would come hoping to find those people, but that we would also come saying, I know that, that this the sister in Christ has had a really long week. I know my brother's struggling. I know they just got a huge promotion. It's a big deal. I can't wait to hug them and congratulate them. I can't wait to go goo goo gaga over this new baby that got wheeled in for the first time. One of the things I like about those citizenship ceremonies I go to is I find other cultures just really fascinating. I like, when I'm in a new place, sitting and listening to the languages around me. I don't know what they're saying. They're probably talking about me. <laughs> they could be saying really offensive things. I like listening to them. It's fun. I like seeing how their families relate to each other. I like seeing the different ways they dress. I find it fascinating. I also find it fascinating when I see citizens of heaven act in a very heavenly way. When I see brothers and sisters in Christ bless those who have done horrible things to them. I find that really fascinating. When I see Christians meet each other's needs and emotions. I just want to look at it longer. And so what I desire is that we as Westchester, as we gather together, not only that we would do that well, but that we would find the culture of heaven and the heavenly way of doing things, that we would find it deeply fascinating, so much so that we can't look away. And I desire that through that, that as the world looks at us, whether it's in our homes, whether it's as we interact with the schools across the street, whether it's in our workplaces, that the world would look at that and go, wow, that's really interesting. And we'd have a chance to explain the hope that we have in Christ and tell about how great our God is who met us where we are 
and loved us when we were his enemies. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you. We ask for your help in these things. God, you are so good and you have been so good to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow not only in our ability to live as heavenly citizens in an earthly home, but that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the heavenly way of doing things. Help us to see more clearly what you've done for us. Help us to extend the love we've experienced through Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.